Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Hey, BTB buddies, thanks for listening and thanks for checking on me. I missed a couple weeks getting episodes out. One week because I was traveling, I wasn't prepared to get the episode out, and the next week because I got COVID pretty bad. It wasn't bad enough to put me in the hospital, but it was bad enough to put me in bed for a few days. And seven days later, I'm still testing positive and not feeling near 100%, but not down to 20% like I was before, so I am getting better. Thanks for reaching out. I'm glad to get through this. COVID's still a thing. Masks are still important. Vaccinations are still important, but you've heard all that and you're going to do whatever you want to anyway. On this week's episode, I've got Shauna Christmas, who was born and raised in Las Vegas, and she started her stand-up career there. Uh, she's a writer, actor, and producer. She's six foot three and played volleyball in college. Probably the tallest female-identifying comic I've had on the show. And she's very funny, very unique. This is quite a unique conversation in talking about comedic influences, which are really none. It's very interesting. I actually found Shauna through an article she wrote on Medium about several years ago. She was raped. And she was raped by uh, another comedian that she worked with. That comedian was put in jail uh, and found guilty of the rape and the consequences of the whole thing was pretty much everybody either didn't want to take sides in the comedy community or didn't want to take Shauna's side. So she was somewhat ostracized for coming forward and saying she was raped, which is very sad. And the article on Medium was really heart-wrenching for me as, as a husband and a father. And even though I'm uncomfortable talking about stuff like this because I don't think an old white guy like myself should have any kind of an opinion on women's rights at all, apparently in talking to other female-identifying comics, men tend to listen to men. So here I am. Men, stop being assholes and stop sexually assaulting women. If you could just do that, then maybe more women would participate in the vocation of stand-up comedy. Shauna was a great interview, very interesting in talking about her influences, which really aren't influences she's she's not a big fan of stand-up comedy but she likes to perform it so i think that's pretty cool shauna is the uh co-host of the topical smoothie podcast she's got a book on amazon and includes stories that came about working as an occupational therapy assistant in nursing homes and the things that people say and she talked about some of the stories when we were talking and the the book is called You Ain't Nothing But a Bitch with a Wig On, which is a true thing that 
somebody yelled at her while she was helping them try to get uh, rehabbed. Shauna is definitely a unique person with a unique perspective, and she's funny, and there's a a lot of good stuff in here, and we talked about the rape and the unintended consequences of her coming forward and the resulting article. So I, I do recommend that you read the article, and guys, just please stop being assholes. So here is Shauna Christmas. Well, hello. We're live again. It's the Behind the Bits podcast. If you're not following my reels on Instagram, you probably should because they're wacky and uh, a lot more wacky than the podcast. I'm uh, really excited to talk to this next uh, comedian because she is in my height category, height category of uh, being extra tall. And uh, I, I want to, I got to watch some of her clips and actually uh, pursued her because she's funny. And uh, so I definitely want to talk to her about uh, how she went from um, being a uh, college vo volleyball player to getting into the comedy scene. Let's talk about her a little bit before we bring her up. Uh, she was born on Christmas Day, and uh, Shauna Christmas is a Las Vegas native. She stands at six foot three and uh, played uh, volleyball in college. I'm sure that probably uh, pissed off the uh, basketball coach. Uh, she's performed at venues including the Comic Strip, the Joke Factory, the Laugh Factory, and has also hosted at the Hollywood Improv, sharing the stage with folks like Jeff Ross and Dane Cook. And um, she's also appeared on the world-famous Gotham Comedy Stage with Judd Apatow and Donnell Rawlings. It is Shana, Shana Christmas. <laughs> Did I get it? Hello. Yeah. Yeah, the second time. Okay. <laughs> it's hard. It, it, it's hard with those A's. <laughs> hey, I really appreciate yeah. you being on the show. Thanks for having me. So let's let, let's talk volleyball first. Uh, were you an outside hitter or were you a middle? I was a middle. Um, I didn't start playing volleyball until I got to high school, which is, you know, nine or ten years too late. Uh -huh. So we're trying to play sports, really. Especially that one, but I managed to do well enough to go to college and play. But I was a middle for the most part. And then my junior year of college, we had a new coach who decided I should play right side, which was, oh, yeah, know, oh, that was a good idea. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I miss volleyball. My daughter was a volleyball player and she did, she was on the travel team and did all that stuff. And then uh, she had some schools looking at her. And then it, uh, her senior year, she said, eh, I just don't want to do this anymore. And, uh, <laughs> walked away from it <laughs> and, and and that's okay uh after after thousands of dollars were spent on uh travel team volleyball but uh yeah, yeah. Uh, we couldn't afford that so it was like hey yeah. if, you, if you managed to be good enough to play good for you but yeah i couldn't afford to play also i got lucky so how tall were uh your parents uh six four and five eleven okay okay that's uh, my daughter's five eleven, and uh, yeah. she's she's got a son that looks like he's gonna be a giant. So I'm uh, I, I'm not really looking yeah. forward to that because when <laughs> I I mean I don't know if you feel like it, but once you're an adult and you're this height, the only advantage you have is that you can reach stuff, and you get all the disadvantages like you can't go to TJ Maxx and buy anything and uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you have to order off the internet and hope it fits. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's it. There's really, you're right. You're, 
I think for you as a tall man, you get paid more because they think that yeah. you, they think that taller people are smarter for some reason. They do. And they always put them in. Yeah, they put them in like authority figures. So you, you might get paid more because you're a tall white man, but I don't get paid more. Yeah. <laughs> They're just like, boy, she's tall. <laughs> yeah, she scares me. <laughs> so I wanted to uh, find out how you went from college volleyball into comedy or did comedy come first oh no comedy came when i was 32 years old okay so yeah a while ago but way after i was done playing sports and trying to figure out what i wanted to do with myself and i've, I've always been a funny person but i always thought that stand-up was very scary and mm. it's true it is so i mean i'm not wrong about the fear but the first time I went up on stage, it was like a three-minute set at a strip club in Vegas, uh-huh. as one does. Um, and halfway through my set, I was like, oh, I'm supposed to be up here. And so that's kind of how that started. Yeah. <laughs> and after you did that, was it like an instant hit with you? Did you decide this is what you wanted to do, or did you ease into it a little bit more? Well, you know, some people say like, oh, my first time I got on stage, I bombed. And I had the opposite where I was like, I was actually really good for like four months. And then I bombed. Uh -huh. So, you know, <laughs> I was super confident. I got this. I'm making people laugh. It's easy. No big deal. And then, you know, later on, it's like, oh, this sucks. And then I went into hiding for like two months after I bombed for the first time. <laughs> then I slowly came back out and was like, oh, that's going to happen. You know, watch a few TED Talks, a few interviews and be like, oh, yeah, we all bomb. It's going to happen. So I just kind of figured it out from there. But very fast at the beginning, I was like, you cannot tell me nothing. I am so hilarious. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it's it's a little bit it's a little bit harder for you when you start out like that? That first bomb is just traumatic. I don't know. I don't know if I would have bombed my first time if I would have kept going. Yeah, so I think it just depends on your personality if you because I don't take rejection well. So yeah. clearly I, I bombed and I was like two two months in the hole. I'm not doing it anymore. You know, so I think if I would have bombed initially, I probably wouldn't be doing it anymore. Maybe. I don't know. Uh -huh. Yeah, you, you, you can't look back and uh, know that for sure. So uh, as yeah. far as so you you do four months that you're you're just uh, doing great and then you bomb and you take a couple months off. What did you do to lift yourself out of that bomb and uh, and just be comfortable on the stage again? Well, I actually started to write jokes. That okay. helps. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the gift of being naturally funny. So I really was like, oh, I just go up there and talk because people think I'm funny. Uh -huh. I had some ideas on what I wanted to talk about, but I never actually like wrote out jokes before. And I still kind of don't. That's not really my style, but I didn't know what my style was at that time. And so I would just kind of go up there and say, I want to talk about work. That should be enough time. And then you realize halfway through, like, that's actually not funny. You know what I mean? So uh -huh. once I sat down and realized, oh, this is what you should talk about. That's funny. You know, finding the funny parts in the conversation and then also just delivering it the way that I always do. That's a funny delivery. But writing became part of it. That's kind of built my confidence. Because mm -hmm. then I went to a mic after I wrote out my set and I did the jokes and everybody laughed. And I was like, oh, right. Okay. Uh-huh. And as you started in understanding what the writing is going to do for your act, did you start to get into a habit of writing where you wrote every day or was it just as it came to you? Yeah, it's just as it comes to me. I don't, uh, I, 
I don't know. I feel like trying to force myself to write doesn't feel natural to me. So I'll get in like my moods where I'm like, oh, that's funny. I should write about that. And then I'll kind of write it. And then the next time I'm on stage, I might try to add different bits. I, I tend to write on stage where I'll have some jokes and then something will come to me while I'm up there. Mm-hmm. And then I'll just say it and go, oh, that was funny. I'm going to keep that. But okay. it's it's kind of a mix. Yeah. And when you when you start writing this out, are you, are you like remembering things in your life that you uh, experience that all of a sudden are funny now? I, I personally, I, I start to think about, you know, when I was a kid and I'm starting to write about that cause I'd never done that before. And, you know, I, I started writing out some of that stuff. And even though I kind of hated it when it was, I was a kid, it's kind of funny now. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I've never been one of those comedians that's like, you know, observational humor or like things that everybody notices or talks about. Like I, all of my comedy has been very like personal to me. Uh-huh. So it's always been some kind of life experience or something like that that I tend to talk about on stage. Every once in a while, I might bring up something that's like, you know, that most people can identify with. But I find it hard to write like that because it doesn't feel like something that I can that's come from my personal upbringing so all the stuff that happens when you're a kid it's funny now because you survived it but (laughs) right i'm sure when you were a kid it wasn't that great yeah (laughs) and what was your first big moment where you you felt like okay this is what i need to do for the rest of my life um like i said when i went to my first mic i realized i should be on stage and i don't know if it meant i should be doing stand-up but it definitely felt like i should be entertaining in some capacity Mm -hmm. now whether it's always stand-up I love stand-up, but I feel like there's more things I can be doing with my voice outside of just telling jokes. But I feel like it was like the first time I was on stage. And then, of course, you know, you get a good set somewhere where there, where there's people in the audience that really, like, can help your career. That's always helpful. But uh-huh. I haven't managed to do that yet. I haven't, <laughs> managed to, I haven't managed to impress the people that can actually help my career. It's always, you know, three people in a bar on a Tuesday night that are like, I loved you so much. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh man i just got that on a thursday it was the same thing and I, uh, yeah. okay thanks <laughs> yeah i kill in like a low pressure room with like 10 people i kill in those rooms with yeah. like two three hundred people and all these network people are here and they're here to watch you're like i'm gonna bomb I yeah i usually do i usually do it's not i haven't figured that out yet yeah i'm working on it <laughs> And I know that you have a lot of material just with your height. How how are you able to talk about your height and then make it funny and yet disarm people to the point where they're okay? They're 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 not okay. A lot of times when I get on stage, I feel like I'm the freakishly tall guy, and that's all they're seeing in me. How how are you able to do that and and have them see you as a person and not just a very tall person? Um, it's actually really funny because I mentioned my height kind of early on in my sets, and people look surprised, like, "Wow, I didn't realize you were that tall." I think it's something about the height of the stage and everybody's sitting, so they can't really mm-hmm. tell how tall anyone is. Mm-hmm. But I don't get a lot of that until once I get down and I go, oh, wow, you are tall. Because I I think it might be the stage difference where they feel like everybody looks tall. They're on an elevated thing. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So I don't really have a lot of 
I mean, see me as a human being. That's outside of comedy. I mean, how do I get society to see me as a human being? Who knows? But <laughs> <laughs> in, in terms of comedy, you know, I, I think they don't. I think I, I I carry it maybe in a way where it doesn't seem like I'm a very tall person. Uh-huh. That might be because I'm trying to make them feel safe at all times. So maybe there's something I'm putting out in my my aura to make them feel safe uh-huh. before I before I lay into them about other things. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and let's let's talk about laying in because I noticed in some of your clips you 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 do a pretty good job of that. Uh, and and yet you you keep it funny and people are still laughing. So you I mean you 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 definitely lay into me. You you lay into 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 the uh, old white guy thing. Um, so what how how did that come up and how are you able to keep it light? Well, I don't want to say light enough, funny enough that it doesn't become an issue on stage. Um, I actually got some advice from Roy Wood Jr. This uh. was years ago. I saw him do a set somewhere at a barbershop in Brooklyn and he was killing. He was talking about race and all this stuff uh-huh. and he was doing such a good job. And I said, how do you talk about these issues without making the audience be mad at you? And he said, just say it with a smile. Mm-hmm. So I'm always like, white people suck, right? Yeah. <laughs> See? Yeah. And it works everything yeah. out. <laughs> it seems very simple, you know? And so I kind of, and I do think there are certain people who can get away with saying certain things because that's who they are. I don't think that anyone can say anything and not get some kind of, pushback i think i am fortunate enough that i can say certain things and i'm still likable at the end right i it could it could just be that too but i try to i try to play into like i'm 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 kidding but also listen this is important right (laughs) yeah and that's what i get from it too i mean it's 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 serious and it's real and yet it's also funny and I, i guess that's the that's really the kicker there you got it. Yeah. I mean, if it's not funny, then they start reading into everything else you said and dissecting it and all that kind of stuff. I've, I've tried to do some social commentary and it just, it doesn't work for me. I just got to be yeah, they, a goofy guy. Yeah. They don't want to hear from you, white man. Shut up. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, as far as the, um, starting to go to you know you've been all you've been overseas all around the world uh canada all that kind of stuff when did you decide to start traveling and how did that change your um comedy what did you learn from it um i think i might have been doing comedy for two years i did my first show on the road on the road um in arizona they did this new face of the comedy show at the improv at tempe Anybody can do it, mm-hmm. but I didn't know it was a bringer show. And so I'm like, I want to go to Arizona. And they're like, how'd you, how'd you get that? I'm like, I asked, like, it, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> they don't know who I am. It's not like I have some kind of formula. You just kind of ask. And then hopefully they say you can come do it. So I arranged it to come down here and do the show. And I realized the day of the show, they were like, you have to bring people in order to get on stage. And I was like, I didn't know that. I don't know anybody here. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? It's like a bringer show, but I didn't know what those were at the time. So I got to perform anyway because I drove all the way from Vegas. Really good time, made a lot of connections. And I've, uh, for me, it's always been about making connections everywhere. I could I can think of a, a couch in almost all the states now that I could probably crash on if I really thought about it. 
how many people I know everywhere. Uh-huh. And I think it's important to travel and try your jokes on people that don't look like you or from the same background to see if they do work. Because a lot of times you can be doing material that only works for that area you're in. Mm-hmm. Which, when I was in New York, sometimes it's all you hear is about the subway or this. I'm like, no one, no one rides a subway in Las Vegas. So you can't talk about that. So you, it's, it helps to kind of travel and see it, the, the country or whatever, because then your perspective changes and then you can write more all around good jokes for anybody. Mm-hmm. Do, do you take yeah. some of your jokes and make them so that they're different regionally? So like instead of the subway in Las Vegas, it could be the bus or whatever. I don't even know if Las Vegas has buses. We do have buses, uh-huh. but I don't know anything about that or what people do on them. Yeah, uh, Everybody has a car there. So it's like talking about driving in New York. People don't drive. So it's it's there's stuff you can't really translate to different places unless you travel around and go that's only funny here mm-hmm. and some people are really great at telling jokes for right where they're from and they're happy doing that but i'm like i would love to be able to go and see different places too I, it's a it's a good way to to travel and also have something else to do outside of, i'm just going to go to denver just to go it's like i'm going to mm-hmm. go to denver and do comedy and also you know maybe hike and pass out on a mountain who yeah. knows but <laughs> It's I, I've always had this little bug about like traveling though. Like I, I have a really hard time with like home ownership. I don't want to own a home. I want an airstream trailer and I want to drive it around and sleep wherever I want to sleep. Yeah. So it's kind of always been ingrained in me to kind of bounce around anyway. So uh-huh. comedy helps with that. Yeah, yeah. It's uh liking to travel is definitely one of the prerequisites. I know that. Yeah. Yeah. Not even liking to travel. It's you know, some people have really small bladders and you can't take everybody on the road because I don't, I don't like stopping every couple hours because you got to pee. Like you got to figure it out. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I, my, my wife and I have been together for uh, almost 40 years now. And the, um, when we drive, I'm always the one that has to pee. It's it, it, of course. It, yeah. And I, it's because I'm I'm drinking Diet Pepsi like it's uh, the lifeblood. It's the only thing that will keep me alive. So, <laughs> yeah, you're just in the passenger seat, relaxing with your feet on the dashboard. You don't have any care in the world. So you're like, ooh, this is nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have to pee. <laughs> <laughs> so, as far as um, your your material is concerned, when do you feel like? Or do you feel like a joke is done? The this is this is I've I've worked on this joke. I've said it a hundred times or whatever, and I feel like the wording is perfect and everything is working great. And now this is this is one of my A jokes. Oh, I don't know. I feel like especially since the pandemic, I was doing a, a set before the pandemic, and kind of some of the things I said before I say now, but it's a different shift to it i have a different perspective on it so mm-hmm. my jokes are always kind of evolving i have a, a same kind of theme but i i might take something out that i don't think is as funny as the new thing mm-hmm. so um i don't really know if, if the jokes are done i think like i said i'm always kind of writing on stage so i might have an idea up there and I'm, oh maybe this will work and then just try it so mm-hmm. every once in a while there's a joke i do i'm like this will get me out of this hole yeah, kind of deal, but <laughs> never, never like this is my big grand finale. It's untouchable kind of deal. It's like, yeah, I might switch it around and have a different ending. You know, yeah. I, 
Yeah. And as far as the um, the performance part, I mean, one of the things I noticed with you is you you look very confident on stage. You 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 look like you are somebody that has uh, been doing it for. 50 years or whatever, and you look very comfortable. Is that, how, how do you feel before a show and how does that translate to how you are on stage? Oh God, it's such a lie. I really hate that I look confident up there because it's so false. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I, I, I get that a lot from people. I'm always like, what are you looking at? Like yeah. I am freaking out the entire time. <laughs> well, you're covering, having a good time. You're covering up really well. Yeah, it, it it I don't know what that is, honestly. Um before I go up I'm very nervous. Once I get up I'm very nervous. I think maybe halfway through I'm still kind of nervous. And then when I get to the end I'm like, okay, less nervous, but I'm very much a ball of nerves the entire time. Right. And, and hoping I do a good job and learning to be like, oh, this didn't didn't land. You don't have to kill yourself, you know, just try to push through it, you know, right. get a little bit of if certain jokes I'm used to working don't work for that reason, mm. and it throws me off. And so I'm working through that on stage because that's the only place you can do it. But I'm mostly just very nervous the entire time. I'm so sorry <laughs> that I project confidence. That don't. is not <laughs> what's going on inside of me at all. Well, that's, you know, is it works, you know, whatever, you know, <laughs> maybe if you actually were super confident, you wouldn't look that confident on stage. <laughs> Yeah, I think it might come off like I'm being an arrogant piece of shit or something like that. Yeah. People are like, okay. <laughs> All right, we don't want to hear from you. So I'm not sure. It's it's a very weird thing where I'm like, people often say that. Wow, you look so calm and confident up there. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just glad you guys like me. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Now, starting... Starting at 32 is, you know, that's kind of what what they would say old for a co a comedian to start. I started at 52, so you know, I I'm only 20 years behind you. Uh, yeah. But um, starting at that age, do you feel like there were some pros and cons to starting at that age, and what were they? I think for me, um, I come from a family where it's like you can go pursue art when you pursue a job. You know what I mean? So I had a like. I had to go to work and just have a regular life and support myself before it was go try to do comedy because comedy doesn't pay you any money very much or right. it's not enough to live. It's not a very, you know, sustainable lifestyle. And so I really didn't, didn't think about doing comedy because it, it, it was something that was very, like I said, scary to me at first, mm -hmm. but also not, not lucrative, not enough for me to like leave my regular life to go do it. And so I felt like, I had already kind of thought about it for a couple of years and said, you know what? I'm going to try it now. I feel safe enough in my, my fallback gig in my day life where I can do both. Mm -hmm. And so it just happened to be around 32. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you feel like the, and, and you've been doing it long enough that you see the, the kids, the, you know, 18 to 22, they start doing stand up and it, it's almost always the exact same jokes. It, you know, it's, uh, it's the dick jokes. It's, uh, it, it's just, they don't know anything. Right. And, but they do that. And, and it's because they haven't had 
all that much life experience, so they don't know they don't know what's actually going on. And then it takes them ten years usually to get to the point where they're actually good and nobody lasts that long i mean very few people last that long and i just yeah. feel like starting later it gives you a little bit of a leg up and you don't have to go through telling all those terrible awful cringy jokes that you hear at the open mics yeah it definitely helps to have lived a life and have a perspective before you start running your mouth in front of people yeah um you know, I think that's a. I think that's the same for like even when you want to go to college. I think you should like live a little bit before you go to college too, because you don't know what you want to do at eighteen. You don't know what you're talking about on stage at eighteen. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, everybody should just chill out and you know get a little bit seasoned first. You can have a different perspective when you're on stage. But everything is like dating and dicks and whatever the hell. I don't even know what they talk about, but it's not good. Yeah, <laughs> and it's already been said. It's just not funny. <laughs> Right. They think they're like so original. It's like, we have heard this. Yeah. <laughs> We're old. Yes. Yeah. Now, when you're um, getting ready to, you know, go out on the road and, uh, and do shows and stuff like that, are you looking at the different people you're going to be performing with and um, looking at what what they do and uh, adjusting your act so it's it's a little bit more uh, cohesive or are you just pretty much doing your own thing? When I book myself, usually I don't even know who's on the show until I get there. Okay. So I and I hate watching comedy, so I don't usually watch people sets. Oh, that's great. Like, oh, yeah, I'm always in the back of the room somewhere or outside and I just I hate watching comedy. It's the worst. That's funny. <laughs> Now, so okay, you hate watch. Like, you can't talk about this, or you can't talk about. I'm like, I don't know what you said, so I'm gonna just do what I'm doing, and I have to worry about it. But uh-huh. I don't watch. I love that. So, if if you hate watching comedy, is there any comedy that you have watched that you really liked? Um. Uh, I love Greer Barnes's comedy. I find him very hilarious. Um. I could always watch a Mike Epps special because he's so stupid. Yeah, it's not yeah. even like it's not even like deep thought. Comedy. I know. It's just he's just a goofball. <laughs> I just need to not think about it and just watch him run around. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff is fun. Um, but other than that, I, if I'm in the room, it's very hard. For yeah. Me so did you did you watch it. comedy specials when you were a kid or did you watch Comedy Central or anything like that? I watched Eddie Murphy's specials when I was a kid because it was so taboo to have somebody talk the way he talked. Yeah. And I remember being a kid and being like, you can't say that. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, but other than that, no, I didn't. I, I'm not one of those people that studied comedy. I'm like, I'm one of the bad people. It's like, I don't know who that is. I've never seen a special. I've never seen that. I don't know who that is. Uh-huh. Like, you don't know who that is? No, I don't. They don't know who I am either. That is so great. I mean, you you are a total outlier. You you yeah. uh, you do your own thing. So everything you do is completely from you. You haven't you haven't like uh, by osmosis glommed off of other comedians and and taken little things from their act. You are really just you up there. Yeah, it's it's so hard too because my comedy is so like personal to me. It's hard for somebody to, to take my set. And what people are talking about on stage, I'm like, that's funny, but that's not something that I would talk about. So it's like, okay. So I, I it's even people's like comedic styles. Eh, 
I don't really, I, I don't know. I'd have to watch him a lot to start to steal it. Yeah. But I don't really, there's nobody I really like, like on stage that I would try to emulate them at all. I uh-huh. just kind of pay attention to what they're saying. Well, that's interesting, but not so much as how they're saying it or what they're doing. Right. Right. I, I absolutely love that because I'm kind of an outlier too. I do love to watch comedy, but you, you know what? A lot of, all the comedians seem to be whatever scene you're in, there seems to be the dungeons and dungeons and dragons players. There's the, uh, the star Wars freaks, the star Trek freaks, the Marvel universe people. And none of that matters to me at all. <laughs> yeah. You're, what you're saying is a bunch of nerds. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> It's definitely a niche market, right? You can do a whole show with people like that at a comic book store and it'll be great, but yeah, nobody else wants to hear that. Right. No doubt. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, well, I don't want to hear it. Other, other comedians apparently like it, but yeah, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I totally zone out. I just tune completely out when that type of talk starts. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. I think it's cool. Like they have like their own people, you know, it's yeah. nice. So they can all talk about the same nerdy stuff, but yeah. it's not, it's definitely a specific audience that doesn't really travel that much unless it's nerd specific shows every time, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> now I got, I got to talk about the book because I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but, um, T- tell me about the book and it's, it's available on Amazon now, right? Yeah. You can buy it on Amazon or you can buy it directly from me and I'll sign it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, it's about, I, I do occupational therapy. So it's a healthcare book. Uh-huh. It uh, basically is, uh, it's just a depiction of all the funny interactions I've had with patients over the years of working in healthcare. So, you know, old people cursing you out or saying something nasty or, you know, being inappropriate or, you know, that kind of stuff. So racism, your standard everyday life working with the sick population. <laughs> and once they get to a certain age, the filter is completely gone. If, if they ever had one. So you get to see what people are really like. Yeah. We always say once a man, twice a child, because you just kind of, as you get older, you just don't care anymore. And so people just say stuff. And I, I always find it interesting as for me being one of like the few black people working in rehab and most places I've been to is I'll get white patients that say stuff to me that they never say to anybody else. And I feel like they think they're helping. Or <laughs> I, I don't know. And I, I, there's a whole racism section of my book where, you know, people are like, I, I always thought that black people were ignorant and stupid because my mom told me that. I was like, well, your mom was stupid. So, <laughs> you know, you've got some 70 year old man who's never spent more than a minute with a black person. And he sees he hangs out with me for an hour doing therapy. And he's like, wow, you changed my entire mind about black people after one hour. And you're like, Wow. Walking, walking around with that perspective for 70 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's in, it, great. I'm glad that I did that, but you don't have to tell me. Uh-huh. Okay. 
Now I'm I'm looking at the title, but I can barely see it. You ain't you ain't nothing but a bitch with a wig on. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. I, I love that title. What I mean, what are a couple couple of your favorite uh, uh, anecdotes from the book that uh, kind of show what it's like to be an occupational therapist? Well, I'll, I'll explain the, the title of the book. That's actually something that happened when I was working in Harlem. Uh, one of my patients was she's had she has dementia, but she was very mean, and she wouldn't do anything I was having her to do for therapy. And uh-huh. She literally said that to me in front of everybody in the gym, <laughs> and so, and she wasn't wrong. I was wearing a wig that day, but it makes <laughs> my job very hard <laughs> when people are insulting you and you can't do anything about it. You know, yeah. that's that's the one thing. You still have to be nice to them if they beat you up or curse you out or whatever. You're still like okay, you know, so. I would say um, that the title was pretty funny one. Um, there's a there's a sexually inappropriate uh, page in there. Of a, a guy who's like 102 years old, and I was kind of dancing in the hallway. And he goes, "Can you do that on your back?" Oh, <laughs> yeah. The filter is completely gone. <laughs> yeah, he's 102. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he doesn't care. <laughs> He's going to shoot his shot. Hey, who, who, who else wants some? Who else? I'll, I'll pinch your butt. You know, they're very being gross does not stop at, at a certain age. You guys are still pretty gross. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Now, um, do they realize what kind of education you have to be to do the occupational therapy? I mean, you're you're right there at doctor level when you have to when when you do that job. Yeah, I don't think they care. Yeah. <laughs> going to say that they're just like mm. if you're not the doctor i don't care and you're like oh you're gonna make me walk it's like yeah you've been walking for almost your whole life now you don't want to do it anymore now it's a big debate you know what i mean it's just yeah well it's it's a struggle yeah but every once in a while you'll get somebody who listens to you and they actually do what you say and it works and you're like yes yeah this is why i went to school for this <laughs> one moment <laughs> One out of how many? I my dad had Man. hip replacement a few years ago, uh-huh. and it was not it was not pretty. And I didn't I didn't wish anybody to have him as a patient. And uh, yet, yeah. yet there he was. <laughs> and sometimes I don't have I, I give it right back to him. Sometimes I'm not one of those people that's like I get beat up. I'll be like, you know, you don't I don't have to help you. You know. I try to explain that to people. Like, if you don't want to do it, you can just stay here and I get to go home uh-huh. and you, you just stay here. That's fine, too. It doesn't hurt my feelings if you don't do therapy. Right. That's not my life. That's your life. You know, uh-huh. I've had these hard hitting conversations with patients when they're being really mean. It's like, if you don't like me, that's fine. We can find somebody here you like so you can get the hell out of here. You know, I don't, <laughs> I'm not always nice to them. Yeah. <laughs> And Again, you really I get away with saying stuff like that to people because I'm yeah. likable in some way. Right. I spent enough time at the facility knowing that it's definitely not a job for me because I I could I just couldn't. <laughs> yeah, you'd be in jail for abuse. Yes, yes, I would. Yeah. <laughs> and and now I understand why it happens. Uh, I I, mm-hmm. I don't condone it, but I understand why. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's very hard to be that restrained all the time. It's, <laughs> whoo. <laughs> now, now I want to I want to get to the, um, the 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 reason why I contacted you. Uh, you know, just out of the blue, I saw a post, and then I read your article on Medium um, about uh, a sexual assault that you um, went through, 
And mm-hmm. one of the things we I talked to you a little bit before we started that, uh, you know, I've always been shy about talking about that kind of stuff because who am I to talk about it? And uh, and then, you know, I had a another um, female identifying comedian tell me, you know what, you know, you really should because guess what? You're, you're the white cis male and that you're the people, the person that people listen to. So if anybody's going to say it, it might as well be you. So I did, you know, I, I read it and it was heartbreaking to me as, as a, um, a parent of a daughter and also, um, a husband for the amount of years. And it was just, uh, it it was really heart wrenching. And that's what, pardon me. That's why I reached out. And, uh, I just wonder if you could talk about, you know, if not necessarily the incident, but what it's like to be a female comedian now, um, even even though everybody thinks it's better for the female comedians. Um, it's very interesting because I ended up coming forward about my story about April right before the Me Too movement started. So I came out in April mm-hmm. and Me Too started in October of the same year. And I was like, where was all the support when I said something? <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Um, it, it's it's a challenge because I, I'm working against, I was assaulted when I was 33 years old. So people mm-hmm. always assume that you should know better. There's a lot of shame and stuff that you take on and guilt. You feel like it's your fault and you know all this kind of stuff that society says that women should be doing to make sure they don't get assaulted it's like how about we tell the men not to do it wow crazy Mm -hmm. um so it was a little bit challenging for me too because all the people in my scene in las vegas i would say 90 percent of them just didn't they either didn't support me or they just tried to stay neutral whatever that meant Mm -hmm. um and even while this person was in jail you know, it wasn't like I just said something and there wasn't any proof. There's like, this person got arrested. They don't just do that because I said so. You know what right. I mean? So it was harder for me because I had all of this proof and there's a person being prosecuted and there's still people around me being like, I don't know, I need to hear all the details first before I can decide. It's like, the cops had the details and they made an arrest. So what are you, you know what I mean? It's this yeah. weird kind of um, people want to hear the the gross stuff about what happened so they can kind of say, well, I don't want to talk to this person anymore. Or it wasn't that bad. So I'm going to still be their friend kind of deal to kind of justify their actions. Uh-huh. I think when you, when you out somebody like that in a comedy scene, especially if that person has more friends or have more clout than you do or whatever, people will, you know, overlook that kind of stuff because they want access to what they have. Uh-huh. And which is strange in my case, because this guy doesn't have anything. It's like, what are you guys doing? But um, it's so dumb. And I, I think it was very helpful helpful to me to see who my actual friends were. Mm-hmm. And it was very, very isolating at first, you know. Um, and I was actually in New York when I came forward about it. This assault happened in Vegas. I was far away from them because I couldn't figure I couldn't stay in the same scene mm-hmm. at risk of running into him. So I had to I went all the way across the country. But I was still very much tormented by it because I would see his face and all these flyers and stuff. I was like, you guys are hanging out with a person that rapes people. Like, just so you know, maybe you can take some action. Mm-hmm. And the action was, let's let's shun Shauna. <laughs> was the action mm-hmm. they, they mostly took was to make me the bad guy because they mm-hmm. had to make a decision about themselves. And some people didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And um, 
some people did. They say now quietly, since I've posted this story, now people are coming out the woodwork saying, I've always had your back and I told him to stay away from me. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been nice for, you know, five years ago when I said something the first time, but right. I don't want to hear it now. You know what I mean? So whatever. So how would you, if say this happens in my scene and um, I'm, I don't know anything about it, but the the one person involved is a friend of mine. You're a friend of mine, or the the other person involved. And um, how how are how do you how do you pro, do you ever look outside yourself and try to process how people look at these incidents after somebody's call out on it and. Um, I mean, it just it just seems very foreign to me that the dude is in jail and they're still saying, well, I need to know the facts. I, 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 I guess I'm I'm having trouble processing how people say they need the facts when the facts are pretty much there, because if there weren't the facts, the guy wouldn't be in jail. <laughs> Yeah, it's, um, I think a lot of people, I, I tend to believe when someone is outed that there's always been like a known secret, you know, people rumbling behind the scenes about mm -hmm. this person for years, which was the case in, in, for me. People had known about this person for years. Somebody actually yelled at me and said, I've known him for 10 years and I don't trust him, but I don't think he did that. What? Uh -huh. <laughs> Can you explain to me why you don't trust him? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's, it's a weird mental gymnastics for them because then they have to look at themselves and go, why am I friends with somebody who has done this to people? And what does it say about me? Mm -hmm. And I think they, they tell victims to go to the cops. I did that. They arrested him. And it's still like, that's not enough. Now you have to come out and tell everybody all the details, even if it hurts you, mm -hmm. so we can be the judge and the jury. And I think if... I don't, I don't know anybody who's been accused of rape or sexual assault. Nobody I know. Mm -hmm. So if you got a friend like that, I would look into it. I would definitely try to, if the woman is afraid to go to the police, which a lot of them are, because mm -hmm. ultimately nothing happens. But I would also try to look at the character of both people. And if you know that person well enough to see them in a different light, you kind of have to take those things and go, well, I've seen him behave in a certain way before where that doesn't surprise me that he can do something like that. Mm -hmm. And that was at least for me where it's like, I work at a hospital. I'm a nice person. I've never done anything to anybody. Mm -hmm. And this person has been in the scene for 10, 12 years and everybody has a story about him doing something. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So even based off that, it's like, you don't have to know all the details to go. This person seems like he could do something like that based off of his record in the community, you know, um, but I do understand there's, I got cussed out by somebody's, um, somebody online and she's like, I've known him longer than you. I just assume that you're lying because I don't know you. Mm. Okay. <laughs> okay. I guess. Like, yeah. it, or I actually had a really good joke about this, which I can't wait to do on TV at some point. It's a very good joke, <laughs> but it, it's, <laughs> it talks about, rape apologists and how they always say well i've never seen him be like that so it can't be true it's like well, why would he do it around you why would they do it around 
everybody. Like if everybody knew they were creepy, they'd stay away from, you know what I mean? People right. would stay away from you if they thought you were creepy. Yeah. The trick to that is to be likable and charming enough that people are conflicted. Cause they're like, uh-huh. he's always nice. Yes. He's able to do two things. So now it makes you feel like if I, if I believe the victim, then I'm going to be, I'm going to lose a friend who's always been nice to me. You know yeah. what I mean? It's right. like these two things can be true at one time. I think a lot of people have a hard time seeing somebody who seems to be nice. Like, yeah, you know, there's serial killers that are nice too. It's uh-huh. not, you know, Ted Bunny was a nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You always hear that kind of stuff. Like they're nice because they have to be, so you can trust them to get close enough so they can harm you. So it's, the, it, it's it, a lot of it is education too. I just think people don't know enough about what that might look like and what manipulation is and all that kind of stuff to kind of have the right tools to know what to do from there. So, right. Just got to talk about it more. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you did. And I'm, you know, I, it was a hard read, but I'm glad I read it. Did, did anybody, did this reach some people that you didn't know that were uh, maybe reached out to you and said, you know, I've been through this and um, maybe, or, or did somebody go forward because the of what uh, you wrote or, you know, what kind of response did you get that was positive? I, I actually got quite a few people that, mostly men to be honest that read it i had some guy who messaged me on instagram and he said he was a high school basketball coach he said i want to show this to my boys so they can see what these lines are because you know people think that rape is like some stranger grabs you and beats you up and whatever it's like a lot of these interactions are from people that you know so it's a little bit more gray area Mm -hmm. and so he said i want to share this with them so they can kind of know when they get ready to go to college and stuff like that that these things are also problematic it's not just like one thing it's a, such a huge scale of how it gets elevated to something that's outright rape you know what mm-hmm. I mean? there's all this coercion and other things that go on where you think it's not a big deal but this person is compromised you know what i mean mm-hmm. so uh most mostly men reached out quite a few people that have known this person have reached out and said that you know he did this to me too and you know that kind of stuff but it, to get anybody to come forward is still is just still very scary because they don't want the backlash so I think um, I did look at the stats earlier today. I think like 1,300 people saw it or whatever and read it. And that's cool. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of what I want is somebody to to see that it's not always just like one way where somebody can be violated. There's so many different ways where consent is just thrown out the window. Right. People think it's okay. So um, I'm just kind of glad I got it out there because I was struggling with it myself. I was very afraid to go back home sometimes to mm-hmm. Vegas and do comedy because I was worried that I'd run into him or people that are friends with him. And now I think everybody knows what's going on. They can make their own decisions about what they want to do. And I don't no longer live in this fear that if we're in the same place, that something bad's going to happen to me. I think um, if anything, something bad will happen to him. Right. Right. (laughs) And I, I'm, I'm glad that men, are reading it and responding to it. And that's really, it was, I guess it was written in such a way that it kind of made a light bulb go off. Uh, even, you know, even though that's not, it's not my thing. I haven't dated since I was 
18. So, you know, it, mm-hmm. I, I haven't even been out there, so I wouldn't even be in that situation. But I guess I thought about, what, you know, when I was a kid and uh, when I was dating and stuff like that. And I, you know, I went back and, uh, you know, you know, fortunately, I, you know, I, I guess I had enough humanity in me that that wasn't something that was part of my DNA, but you know, it just really, uh, it really struck me and and being a dad, it it also really hit me hard because, you know, there, there, like you said, there are so many levels of consent and at, at any point during any kind of an interaction when no is said, that's what it means. And I, yeah. I, I guess it really hit home for me. And it was, uh, it, it was, uh, it was a struggle for me to read and it was emotional and, um, I'm glad you did it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It was very, very hard, but I had been sitting on those screenshots for years and it's like, why am I holding on to this for, you know what I mean? So it was therapeutic for me to get it out. And I'm glad that it was able to help anybody else who saw it and, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of what I wanted really is to kind of get it off of me. So right. I'm not bogged down by it all the time. So. Yeah. So, and I do know that a, a lot of the reasons that women quit comedy is because of the misogyny of it all. And, and uh, not, you know, not even rape. It's just the, the fact mm-hmm. that they are treated differently uh, from the get go and they just don't get the same, they don't get the same start as a guy. Um, and, um, what advice would you give to somebody that really wants to do comedy, but they're going through, you know, the, the misogyny of it, they're they're getting booked, um, uh, because they have to have one woman on the, uh, on the show to, um, show that they're diversified and all that kind of stuff. What, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who really wants to do it, but they're up against that type of stuff? Um, I, for me, being a black woman, I'm always kind of been, we, we have to have one of you, right? The same kind of deal with just being a woman, but there's always this other level of like oppression, right? Day to day. It's not even in comedy. So you kind of have to go into it knowing that there's going to be things against you and you have to acknowledge that and not let it ruin what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, well, I think when you first start, it's very hard because you don't know who's who, and you you look up to certain people because they have they're popular, and it kind of it's kind of like high school, you know. It really be, is, yeah. It's you don't fit in, or you're weird, or you're not one of the funny people, and they're not asking you to do the show. It's like you know, and a lot of people will say, "We'll start your own thing," or you can start hosting your own mic where you have control, which is helpful. I never did that because I can't sit to somebody else's comedy for that long, but. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are there are ways for people to get through it because even when I started, I started nine years ago now, almost nine. Um, there were four women, and now there's two. Mm-hmm. There's, there's only one when I when I'm not there. There's just one. <laughs> when I go back, there's two. Wow. And women kind of either come in, they meet some guy, and they get in the relationship and they just quit comedy altogether, or maybe something happens and they don't come back. But, and I think that Vegas is a very strange scene anyway. So it's kind of hard to sustain anything in, in that area, especially with having women there. But I would say, you know, go in there with an open mind, keep your guard up and keep your head down and kind of 
just try to be funny and don't be distracted by all the silly nonsense that's going on. And if you're there long enough, you'll be able to see who the people really are and what's really important to you. And then you can kind of flow through and not be worried about all the mess that's going on. Right. Right. It's, it's gotta be really tough to be the one female comic in a scene. Yeah. And she's been doing comedy longer than me and uh, they know her now, you know what I mean? But I imagine for when she first started, it was hard for her too. Yeah. It takes a certain kind of personality to to know that you're going to be subjected to some some BS and to be like, this is BS, but I have to do what I got to do kind of deal. So, uh-huh. yeah. So this uh, and, and thank you for talking about that. It's uh, it's a really tough subject. And uh, I I I just want men to just, you know, finally figure out the, you know, no means no. And, you know, it's, it's totally okay to ask, but when, when the Noah said, that's okay, you move on, do move on with your life. Just, uh, leave them alone. Yeah. It's very, it's, I think it's very hard for people to, for men to do like to, to hear rejection, but if you're doing comedy, you're going to get rejected a lot anyway. Yeah. Like, it's, and I think sometimes people go into comedy so they can actually prey on people like that because mm. they have this audience of people that are looking at them and adoring them because they're funny and they can laugh or whatever. And they kind of see themselves as like, this is, these are the people I can actually get my hands on because they're coming to see me, which means they must want me. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's a very strange scene to be in. And I think it's very much open to predatory people yeah. for that reason. Yeah. I, I, I'm a hundred percent on that. And I've noticed you, you can see that type of personality, I guess, what, I, especially once you get to a certain age, you, you, you just yes. see it. And it, you, no matter what they do, they can't cover it up. You can tell that, that they're there for a reason. And that reason isn't just laughs. It's uh, it's right. so that they can get what they want. Yeah. I, I definitely mm-hmm. agree with that. Well, I, I, like I said, I appreciate you um, talking about it and uh, you know, Guys, uh, read the article. It's going to be in the show notes. Read the article and learn from it. That's that's all I ask. Is that, especially if you're a, a a young man starting in comedy and there's women there. Guess what? They're not there for you. They're right. if something was to happen, that's great. But they're not there for you. They're they're there for their own career. So yeah, that's all I got to say. Um, and also, if you, if you do read that. And it, it hits you in a certain way. If you see someone who's behaving in a way that you don't like, you need to check them. Yeah. You can't quietly go behind closed doors and say, we don't like this person. You need to let that person know that that behavior is not tolerated around your scene because yeah. you want to protect your comics and your audiences. So we got to be more vocal about standing up for people when it matters as well. Right, right. Yeah, I'm 100% behind that. Um, so to wrap up, one of the things I like to ask everybody is, um, what is one thing you know now that you wish you would have known when you started stand-up? Oh, oh man. Uh, submitting to festivals and not getting in and stuff, none of that matters. <laughs> I, I, I got a text with a friend this morning, and he was like, are you submitting to festivals? I was like, I banned festival submissions in 2019. I'm over <laughs> it. It's just, it, it's, it looks cool to be accepted and stuff like that, but there's so many rejection emails you get or so many, you leave it sometimes, you don't get an email. You just spend all this money and you, it, it makes you feel bad sometimes. Like, yeah. Like you're not funny. 
And then you have to realize the people that are picking are like, you know, old white people that don't know anything. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, they're never going to like my jokes. It's fine. So don't get worried about not being accepted to a festival or something like that. Cause it's not important. Right. Right. I, I agree with that one. Cause I've, I've been through it and you know, even when you start later in life, it hurts. The, the, it's really soul crushing when you get a rejection letter. This is the best tape I've ever made. And you're like, mm, yeah, not good yeah. enough. You're yeah. Like, what the hell? <laughs> Yeah, and th th then then you see everybody, of course, on social media, the ones that got in. You know, you for some reason the algorithm just knows that you are sad and pissed off, and then you see uh -huh. everybody that got in. <laughs> I love seeing the people that are like, "This person is not funny," but how they make it. I love doing that. That's why I don't like watching comedy because if they get put into a festival, I can't be like they're funny or not. I don't know. I haven't seen them. I don't know. Yeah, but I like to assume that most of them are friends with the producer or something there's always some political thing happening that's yeah. beyond your control and that's also why i don't care anymore about them because it's like if yeah somebody will find me i i hope i hope at some point i'll make the right steps that somebody that's i'm supposed to be getting seen by the people that should be seeing me right so right i'll save my, my money on gas yeah yeah for sure and <laughs> submission fees <laughs> right you're yeah. paying all this money for, for rejection like i'm good on that i'll do a free one but yeah. i'm not paying anymore i can't do it <laughs> great well i'm gonna have a link to the to the book you ain't nothing but a bitch with a wig on and uh i'm, I'm gonna get that because it, um i want to I, i've got a um a family friend that has two daughters that are occupational therapists. And okay. uh, I, I want to send that, send that over to them because I'm, I hear stories from them all the time. <laughs> so I'm sure they can concur with some of the stuff you go through. <laughs> and oh. uh, as far as um, uh, finding you online, I've got your website down here, but where can everybody find you online? Um, I'm Shauna Christmas on all the platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Ugh, I'm on that too. Um, but it's all Shauna Christmas, S-H-A-N-N-A Christmas. So you can find me on those. Great. Well, it was really great getting to know you. And uh, uh, I, I can give you one piece of advice. If you want to look for clothes that actually look good and fit you, there's a place called American Tall. And I've oh, been yeah, shopping on right there now. There you go. Yeah, I've been sh I've been shopping mm -hmm. there for it's it's really because you know the like the Lane Bryants of the world are made for for women that are much wider. Yes. <laughs> and uh, the same the same goes with with men clothes. Big if you go to yeah, big and tall, it's all big. <laughs> Yeah, it's not big and or, it's just big and. Yeah. So you've got to be both to fit the clothing. So. Well, I'm glad you found yeah. American Tall. I've actually been uh, trying to get them to be a sponsor, so I'm going to use this as <laughs> as, uh, as a, um, a, a another prod to get them to uh, sponsor the show because I've got so much of their shit in my closet, they shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, I they could pay me in clothing. <laughs> I actually met those guys at the uh, magic convention in Vegas. It's a clothing convention that's usually twice a year. And I actually met them. We were at the MGM, me and my mom. Uh -huh. and two guys approached me and they were like, hey, um, have you heard of American Tall? I said, yeah, I just bought a pair of sweats from them. They were like, that's our company. And I was like, oh, you guys are based out of Canada. That's cool. 
Uh-huh. And um, so I actually met them recently this year and, and stuff like that. So very nice people. Yeah. Well, very nice, good co- Canadian people that should sponsor you. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, thanks so much for doing this interview. It was really great getting to know you, Shauna. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you.